you're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. This month, The Show on the Road is sponsored by Winter Wondergrass, now with three unique festival locations. In Steamboat, Colorado, February 21st through 23rd, Lake Tahoe's beautiful Squaw Valley, California, March 27th through 29th, and now Stratton Resort, Vermont, for the second annual Sugar and Strings Fest, April 10th and 11th. Who throws a music festival under the stars in the middle of winter, you ask? Why, Winter Wondergrass, of course. These are the most unique festivals I've ever been a part of. I played them in Lake Tahoe and in Colorado, and you know what? Just because you're wearing snow pants doesn't mean you can't dance, and it is really, really fun, guys. Single and multi-day passes for Winter Wondergrass are available now. Head over to winterwondergrass.com for more. This week on the show, a very special finale to our winter season, featuring a group of world-traveling folk-funk adventurers that have been on the forefront of pushing American roots music into the 21st century with their exuberant melding of string and brass band traditions. A band that has headlined saloons and theaters and festivals in over 12 countries, released records at the top of the Americana charts, and is near and very dear to my heart. Yes, indeed, I founded this group in Venice Beach, California, with one lucky Craigslist ad that started it all. Ladies and gents, Dust Bowl Revival. To say today's episode is personal would be a pretty huge understatement. In many ways, Dust Bowl Revival has become more than a band to me. It's my job. It's my calling. It's a collection of colleagues and creators, an extended and oddball family of incredibly talented musicians, composers, lyricists, minivan drivers, travel agents, logistics technicians, graphic designers, and small business owners. And now after a decade, I am proud to say that these guys and gal are my friends. As you can hear, my voice is a little crispy right now. That's because we have started our record release tour. And you know those first four shows of a tour after you've been off for a while? Man, they really kick you upside the head. Also, that nice humming you hear, it's probably the fridge humming or the boiler because I'm stuck in the back room here at a venue in Pennsylvania and I shouldn't even be doing this right now. I should be warming up for the show. But you know what? This is an important episode for me. In fact, the very reason I started this podcast was to show folks a glimpse of what it's really like there out on the road and what it's really like inside the head of your favorite songwriters and music makers when they're really doing it. And since around 2013, Dust Bowl Revival has been one of the hardest working bands in show business, averaging 150 to 200 shows a year. To say that it has come with a heavy dose of sacrifice, doubt, and bone-deep weariness, that's also an understatement. And yet, it seems silly, but last night in Massachusetts, for example, on an icy Tuesday in a faded mill town surrounded by shuttered warehouses, my soul was lifted by the 200 people who packed the place and sang along to songs that I wrote with my bandmates. And if there's anything better than that feeling, I don't know what it is. I'll admit to you right now, there is a narcissistic element to every performer's life. I take it personally every time people don't show up for our shows, and I wish I didn't but it still hurts after all these years when you're singing your heart out and people are looking away or looking at their phones. We're distracted in our society right now. I get it. Sometimes I go to shows and catch myself doing it. It's crazy. And folks ask me, why do you still do this? For the cheering? For the grateful hugs and high fives in the cold wind after the show? Maybe. Really, it's the community that comes together to support music in every corner of the known world. They say that there is someone for everybody. Well, Finding your favorite band is like falling in love with a uniquely strange new love that fits you like a glove every moment of every day. 
The fact that we have managed to release seven full-length albums, played on three continents, and gained a loyal fanbase of sweet-hearted listeners and fans from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, from San Francisco to Columbus, Ohio, to Bristol, Tennessee, to our home base in LA, to London and Utrecht, and tiny Tuna, Denmark, where we sold out that local venue before we even arrived last November, is beyond anything I could have imagined when we began this long ago. Some folks want to set the world on fire with their songs from the start, get a record deal, tour in a shiny bus, get on TV. We started much more modestly. I was working in an advertising production company, writing Taco Bell commercials and doing location scouting and reordering stationery and toilet paper and picking up cinematographers from the airport who would make more in a single day than I would make in a year. How do I know that? I put their checks into the envelopes and mailed them out. I knew there was no future for me there but I didn't know what else to do. I had just moved to LA from Chicago by way of the University of Michigan with only a half-brained idea that moving across the country for what I thought was love was a good idea. And I knew from age 14 that I just wanted to be a writer. What kind of writer? Heck, I loved it all. Novels, short stories, magazines, poetry zines, comics, movie scripts. In college, I would submit to the revered Hopwood Writing Awards in four categories, poetry, short fiction, playwriting, and screenwriting. But it was in playwriting that I seemed to find my true calling. There was something about capturing the perfect cadence of a real conversation, the raw thrill of seeing great actors become fathers and sons and aliens and spy cyborgs and defiant talking prairie dogs, the ones that I had created in my mind moments before. It was hard to beat that feeling of seeing your work come to life in front of you. And for a moment there, I was in the final six people in the world called to be in the Yale Playwriting MFA program. I told the band this was probably it. Our little Dust Bowl revival dream was already over. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting in the green room at McCabe's Guitar Shop where I've recorded some of the episodes of this show, and I told them, look, I love this band. I love making music with you all, but I'm probably moving to New Haven, Connecticut, and the band will just have to be a fun, distant memory we all had. But something kept nagging at me as I waited for that envelope to arrive. I wasn't ready to leave it behind. There was something about playing music that was better than anything else I knew, a unique and visceral high I had to have. The main difference was that I was on stage. I wasn't just watching and waiting for the show to come up. I was the show. And maybe that's narcissistic, maybe that's selfish, but I wanted to be in the light, not in the dark. Finally, that letter came in the mail. I stood on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. I opened it in the sunshine, and it said, you are not accepted. Yeah, they picked the other three folks, but you know what? I was relieved. I was relieved because I got to do what I really, really dreamed of doing, playing music every night of the week. It was like a button was pushed. Now is your chance. And maybe those three folks are off to fame and fortune on Broadway while I'm still out here hoping for folks to pack the music hall in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on a Wednesday, but I have a new record out that I'm so proud of it hurts and my six band members are ready to give their all behind me every night, like we did last night, and the night before, and the night before, and like we'll do tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Sometimes I wonder if I made the right choice, playing music every night of the week. And yet, as our wise drummer Josh mentions at the end of this episode, we don't choose to make music our life. It chooses us. It is a gift. And I'm so grateful to everyone who has listened to our songs and bought a record and told me to keep going. Damn the torpedoes. 
and I was super glad to be able to finally chat with my whole Dust Bowl Revival family and our lovely producer Sam Kassira who helped make our record Is It You, Is It Me possible. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, stop what you're doing. Go online, listen to it right now. There are some songs on it that honestly are beyond my comprehension. I don't even know where these songs came from. Like some lightning bolt from the universe, they arrived in our midst, and I'm so happy that it's finally in the world. Well, I should probably sign off here. You know what? I want to thank everybody for being with us on this podcast journey. There are many more episodes to come, and you can probably hear the band warming up right now. So you know what? I should probably get out of here. And if you're in the Midwest, in the East Coast, and the West Coast, come and see us. We have some really, really fun new songs to show you. But without further ado, here they are now, Dust Bowl Revival. Please go around and introduce yourselves to the radio audience. Hi, I'm Josh Heffernan, and I play drums in the Dust Bowl Revival. Woo! I'm Matt Rubin, I play trumpet and now keyboards in the Dust Bowl Revival. Ew. Hi, I'm Ulf Bjorland, and I play the trombone. <laughs> this is Zach Lupitin, your friendly host. I sing lead and play guitar and uh, auto harp on this new record. Yeah. Hi, this is Liz Beebe. I sing lead in Dust Bowl Revival. Hi, this is Connor Vance, and I play violins and guitars on the album. Oh. So, this has been a long time coming, and uh, I'm so glad you guys are all here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We're yeah. in Liz's apartment. Yep. And uh, that old ship. <laughs> yes, this is a very momentous day. Uh, we're recording this. This is the day that our new album, Is It You, Is It Me, finally came out. Woo! Yeah. How is everyone feeling? Give me, uh, give me your immediate thoughts. I'm very excited. I've got a lot of friends already telling me what their favorite songs are and boasting about how they are proud to know me and the band, and I'm very excited for us. Yeah. <laughs> I feel, I'm like electric. I feel like I'm buzzing. I'm exuberant. I'm also going to look up some synonyms for enthusiastic. <laughs> I am excited to finally have it out in the world. I was just thinking about how long we've been working on some of these songs, and uh some of them have been in process for a year and a half or more, so it's like it's nice for them to finally see the light of day. Uh, I'm excited it's coming out. I was just thinking, how long has it been since we actually recorded these? March. March. So almost so a year. I'm excited to play these songs for you yeah. because it's been almost a year since we actually put these down on I've been tape. I've been dreaming about this day for a long time. Hey. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I think people don't realize how long making a record takes, especially if you want to have the full um, release process. You know, you, you have to have the studio in place, the producer uh, in place. You have to have the money in place, which we learned was easier said than done. Um, and this has been 
a pretty epic journey just to get this into the world. Um, about a week before we went into the studio, um, we realized, and by we, I mean me, <laughs> and the uh, management team realized that our money that was going to come to help make this possible was disappearing, possibly. And I think we've learned that it's very difficult to promise something to a, an independent record label um, in this day and age when they are so financially strapped. And we are so thankful that uh, 30 Tigers took a flyer on us and really came in to save the day. Yeah. Because it would not have happened. This would not be out in the world right now if they didn't come in. And so big cheers to them. And um, big up. what has it been like... Let's start with Josh. You know, these last ten years being in this band. I mean, it's been ten years, but I think. Wow, man! Like, because you, you, crazy you could probably about. see the the journey that we've taken from playing little bars. The first night that Josh came in, we played a place called the Cinema Bar in Culver City that could fit maybe twenty people in it. Well, realistically, like the band, half the band was in the crowd. Right. We had ten people. I was that was my first gig as well, and I was not on the stage. Wait a minute, that was, was your first gig? I'm pretty sure I was off stage with with John. More? More as well. Was he playing tuba? Playing tuba. So we were both <laughs> so, off, right off stage. So many people. Uh, I mean, that's a tough question. I guess uh, the growth of the band as yeah. a band. Yeah. And as individual players. I mean, Connor, you can see like a huge difference between even the last four years mm-hmm. of changes, I think, in everybody. Yeah. But, well, uh, you push for a lot of development and push us to go further, Josh, and that really helped us develop into something that matched all of our unique tastes. And it didn't always go smoothly. (laughs) Sometimes I personally and and other folks fought against maybe modernizing the sound or uh, going too far away from uh, the real basics of what I love about this group, which is that it's expanding what Roots music can be. But really, Roots music right now in the Americana Mm -hmm. sort of thing can mean so many things and rock and roll and soul and funk and even pop music. It's all referencing American roots music Mm -hmm. now, which is great. And so it's right. Absolutely. It's our job to create something new and hope that we get included in a larger conversation. Sure. I I think like this record in particular, I think is the first time where not maybe the first time, but I think it's a good example of us utilizing everybody's talents Better than we have before. Like, it seems like everybody's voices really shine on this record as who they are as a player and who they are as an individual performer and how we work as a group together. And so, Matt, you know, you were one of the first people to respond to the original Craigslist ad that this band formed from. That's right. Um, I put it out there when I moved to L.A. from Chicago. I was working in advertising and kind of bummed out that I wasn't playing in bands anymore. Um... Because I I was in bands from eighth grade through high school and college, and it was like my obsession that I couldn't leave alone. But working in an office all day, you started to feel your soul drip out of your body, not doing the thing you really wanted to do. I put up this Craigslist ad, and Matt sent me a a message, and he, he put his phone number on the bottom, and it said 847 area code. And I'm like, wait, are you from Evanston, Illinois? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, where? And he said, Brummel Street. And we literally grew up on the same street for the first five years of my life and had no idea <laughs> each other existed. 
So tell me about what where have you've gone in this band's progression uh, and how you're feeling about it. Well, I mean, this has got to be the most successful Craigslist gig of all time. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I was finishing uh, graduate school in music and looking for gigs, and uh, that Craigslist ad, it started out just to meet at your office that you were soon to retire from, uh, but we rehearsed some of your songs, and I was like, oh, this guy's like writing cool, folky, sort of Woody Guthrie-influenced stuff, and uh, it has definitely come a long way. I think, you know, to, to Zach's credit, he was very open to allowing the different influences from all the different players into the, the music, uh, into the group. So whether that was earlier on when Connor and Daniel Mark joined and uh, things took a turn for the bluegrass direction or when we started to play with more electric instruments, electric guitar, electric bass, and things got a little more rocking, I think it's been interesting to watch Zach's songwriting to watch your songwriting adapt in that way to me like that's the folk element that remains in the music is in the songwriting in the storytelling of the songwriting and that it's not just like everybody get drunk tonight pop tune it's like that there's still these stories that are the same sorts of stories that have been told by rock singers and blues singers and folk singers and everybody else well, I think you and I share a, a mutual love of Bob Dylan and his total body of work. And yeah. Honestly, you know, if you listen to Bob Dylan's first, you know, self-titled record, he's playing the Midnight Special. He's playing uh, House of the Rising Sun. He's like covering these old gospel songs, and then you know, going into the two thousands as this elder statesman, he's playing almost like electric blues, you know, Odyssey yeah. music, you know, and that's something that. Maybe some people won't listen to his new stuff now, but some of his later work, like Love and Theft, is one of my all-time favorite records. I think his know. most recent album is actually an album of jazz standards, though, so maybe that's our next move. I don't know. <laughs> Sinatra tunes? Yeah. I like to actually give a shout-out to uh, that office where I first had the band rehearsing. It's now long, no longer in business. Uh, House of Usher Films, uh, Nancy Ha Cohen. Thank you for not firing me. Uh, I think you caught us a few times but you were a fan of the band, so it was okay. And my original boss, uh, Kinka Usher, is a wonderful commercial director and also directed Mystery Men, underrated superhero film. one of the best films of the (laughs) the Um, He funded, he helped fund the first few Dust Bowl albums. Really? Never listened to them a single time, (laughs) I think. They stayed in plastic on his desk my whole time there for five years. But cheers to him for helping out... uh, a struggling musician. And that is getting unconditional. You in a, yeah. And getting you in a Taco Bell commercial. That also helped fund. <laughs> Taco Bell commercials. Um, so, Ulf, you also came on board pretty early. Uh, I saw you play with Vaud and the Villains, and uh, I always wanted to have a horn section like a New Orleans brass band, um, and I kind of, not like totally stole you away from them, but I got you involved pretty early, and... Uh, you know, you've also done several things in the arts. You know, you were want you came out to LA with your family. You wanted to be an actor. Um, you know, you were on a billboard as Aladdin. You know, <laughs> I mean, tell us about your journey in the band so far. Well, I was looking to stay busy and just gig around town, and I saw the ad. Obviously, 
Uh, I wrote you and said, my name is Olaf Bjorlin, and I play trombone in this other band, Vaughn and the Villains. Uh, and you said, that's funny, I just opened for you guys last Saturday. And Thanks for not noticing me. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm like, oh, that's cool. He's like, yeah, I came up to you and said hi. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I totally remember that. And then I heard your music, and I really liked it, because you had already started recording Atomic Mushroom Cloud of Love. That's Zach Lupatin and the Dust Bowl Revival. Early, early days. Yes, and you were already, like, halfway through with the album. Matt had already started laying down some parts, so I came in and recorded for that, and I just, I liked it. I liked the the interesting, eclectic vibe, and it gave me opportunities at that time to solo, which terrified me because I have never considered myself a good, like, soloist, like a jazz soloist. I was always parts-oriented in classical music. So, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, at that point, you were living with your mom yeah. in yes. the valley. Yes. Good place to park. Uh, trips. Nice pool. <laughs> and uh, I remember going, going over to your house and, and working on songs, um, and I think you and I share a theatrical sensibility where we like to put on a show um and you know you like to go crazy a bit on stage i have a certain sense of flamboyancy if you will especially that new jacket that you wore in boston for our first show of this tour (laughs) i am half persian after all so but you know being able to have the two horns together and you guys obviously don't always agree on where parts should go but (laughs) having that um, energy is so important to this band, and a lot of people um, have bands where they bring in the horns for one or two studio tracks, or maybe for like a special event. But for me, like the brass is the element that has always got to be there for me because that's what makes Dust Bowl have its sound. Well, I appreciate Zach that you have always had. Uh a lot of gusto and zest for the trombone. You you were like very clear that trombone was integral to the band when I when I joined. Incidentally, I think I was the only trombone player that actually uh, applied to your Craigslist <laughs> ad. There was probably a hundred saxophonists. You told me, but that is true. I, I put about nice sixteen choice. instruments uh, as you know something that I would love to have come aboard: accordion, clarinet, you know, trumpet. I didn't say drums at first, or I didn't, and I didn't say saxophone. And the first ten people who emailed me were drummers and saxophone <laughs> players. There's a lot of drummers. We even had a Russian tubist. It's true. Mm-hmm. Let's talk to the lone lady in the band because really things started to transform uh, in this band when Liz came aboard around 2013, 13. and she also answered a different type of online ad. I think it was in. Back page, yeah. Rest, God rest its soul. Which is now uh, shut down because they would try to promote uh, prostitution. I think. Yeah. Well, it was actually um, a really safe. It was well. actually a really safe platform for sex workers, and right. and um, that community is actually um, has been really negatively impacted because that website has gone away. So I am empathetic to that situation and grateful that I found the band through that. Even though I myself am not a sex worker, I support sex workers. Um, it is still work. So I, I answered an ad. I was at work in television production, not too far um, from what you had been doing. And um, I sort of think of my story 
of how I joined Dust Bowl as like a fairy tale of how people in the movies describe moving to Hollywood and landing a role and becoming an actor. Because I was at work and just decided, you know, I haven't been singing as much. I had been performing with the Satin Dolls, which are a 1940s vintage pinup group. We did a lot of Andrew's Sisters harmonies, um, a lot of dancing, um, which was super fun. And I wanted to be doing some other styles of performance. So I literally Googled (laughs) session singing work in Los Angeles, which for anybody listening out there is bananas and not how you find a job in LA that is or is it that's anything <laughs> normally speaking this is a an uncommon occurrence and the second link that i clicked on was dust bowl's back page ad for a uh, new lady singer because uh Caitlin Doyle the former and first lady singer of dust bowl had left i think 4 months prior um from about 4 years i think in the band mm-hmm. so I sent Zach some YouTube links, um, which actually I had to type out because Backpage's website was so antiquated you couldn't even hyperlink anything in the in the text box. In 2013, I was pretty surprised, but still. Um, and he was like, these look great. Come check out our Mint residency. And I went down and saw the band. Um, and I brought a friend of mine who's also a musician, Levi Petrie, and uh, he's friends with Daniel Mark, our former former mandolin player. Um, and I saw the band and was like, wow, these guys are really good. And then I was super excited about answering the ad. And I think Zach said, what'd you think? And I said, I think it sounds great. Uh, I just want to have fun and play music. And he was like, that's what it's all about, isn't it? (laughs) 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 Maybe I I acted that out a little too intensely. I didn't feel like he was (laughs) being creepy. Um, It was back page. Well, I went to your house. And then two weeks later, you came to my house. Your hus- you played my husband's guitar. Yeah, I think, I think he was um, I actually, I had gotten married, I think, a year earlier, because right when I joined, Matt was literally off getting married. Um, and we played through, he was like, let's do a couple songs, and I was like, cool, I've prepared <laughs> National Geographic and What You Do Into Me, so you could hear me singing alone and us singing together. And he goes, great, well, you have the job. Little did the band know <laughs> that when I showed up to my first... Um, let's say official gig because at the time I was still doing some theater performances and I would sort of go to work all day in a production office which if anybody knows is like a 8 to 14 hour job depending on where you are in production then I would um, go either to rehearsal for this play that I was in or a performance depending on when we were in the schedule. And then after the performance, I would go and try and sit in on like the second half of the second set of wherever Dust Bowl was playing. Um, I think I, we did like Villains Tavern. I think it was, I felt like the first time you I played with you yeah. was the Satellite. Mm-hmm. You came and Satellite sat in, like, is the like the first official gig yeah, that I yeah. did. So when I came to that show and I was like, I'm here, I'm in the band. And Matt wasn't there. We were playing with um, Ron. And... Yeah. Everyone was like, who are you and why are you here? Oh, you're just sitting in. And I was like, I guess he hasn't told anybody. We did the gig. And then after the gig, he was like, great, so you're in. Like, it was like a second audition. I didn't realize that I was nailing. But when you see someone, there's, there's that spark and you just know sometimes. I don't know. You know, it just, you can feel 
the energy of someone that you're like, this is going to gel really nicely. And, you know, we do something that, you know, a lot of bands don't try to do is have these co-lead singing lines Mm -hmm. where we match each other in volume and and harmony. And, um, you know, I think some of my favorite bands like Fleetwood Mac had that co-lead singing thing. And sometimes people can take um, a song in a different direction if Stevie Nicks is singing instead of Lindsey Buckingham. Mm -hmm. And... I love writing songs for you um, because I can kind of actually be an audience member and be in the band. Because a lot of times when you're playing guitar and singing, you're not really enjoying the moment. You're sort of like so in it and trying not to screw up and trying to, you know, really nail every moment. And then when I can see you doing it and I'm just playing guitar, I can kind of enjoy the show a little more. Um so tell me how it's been singing some of the songs in Dust Bowl um, and how the songs maybe have transformed over the last few years. Yeah, um, I think that sort of the magic of Dust Bowl for me, like our secret sauce is us singing together. I think our, our superpower is when we sing together. And that's not to say I don't love singing the songs that you write for me because I do. And I think that the acting background that I have and the writing background that you have makes us a really special pairing, and I'm glad that we found each other because the way that I like physically embody music, that's how I process it personally. So being able to take something that you've written that really is a story, I can insert myself into that as the performer that I have grown to be through the training that I have, and then really like have that song come out of me as that person in that experience, and so that's really fun. Um, but I love singing it together I think our voices go great together and that's really lovely to have that sensory experience um and it was really nice for me to switch from doing sort of a more uh three-part oriented style of performing into this more folk or rock or sometimes pop style that I really grew up listening to I came up on Sean Colvin and Dar Williams and Fleetwood Mac and a lot of rock music that my dad had but I also grew up listening to like cats on the way to school with my mom or like I saw Phantom of the Opera when I was 12 so um all of those styles of singing sort of led me to really want to land with this two-part harmony and it's lovely to have solo songs now and then but I really I really love when we work together so um you can listen to the Dar Williams episode yeah if you go to the show on the road podcast oh she's so amazing have you done an episode with the cast of Cats. <laughs> uh, Judy Dench will be coming in next week. Uh, oh my God, I'm Jennifer coming Hudson. to that one. No, no that's cinematic. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think uh, something that really has inspired me writing-wise is to be able to envision myself as a character in a song that's not me. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I came up you know, writing fiction and, play, and plays and stuff and you've always pushed me to be more personal, which I think has really helped because in my mind, I want to write about outer space and aliens right. sucking your brain out of your head or something. But if you can make some of that more personal, you can bring the fantasy and the reality together. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the good stuff comes. Yeah. Um, and Enemy is an example of that where I witnessed something within my extended family that happened after the election and it really upset me mm-hmm. and I wanted to write it more from uh, a woman's perspective 
seeing something happen in her family and uh, a separation and a lack of trust and a lack of belief. And sometimes the only way to do that is to see it through someone else's eyes. Right. Um, and I wanted you to sing that. And it's such a cool thing every night to see the fire that you bring to that song. Uh, and it feels just as personal for me, even though I'm not, I'm not singing it. On the other side of the coin of the song Enemy, you know, on one hand, it's this very um, emotional, dark story of a family sort of realizing that they're strangers to each other. But also, subconsciously, it was definitely inspired by Ace of Bass. <laughs> <laughs> you love Ace of Bass. Because that opening number with the whistling is pretty much all that she wants. I love that Which song. is like, I just love that song. And, uh, you know, thank you to the Swedes for giving mm. us... Yeah. Thanks to John Stickley for playing a cover set at Bender Jamboree because we actually got to cover that. (laughs) And I came out and was like, yas, Ace of Bass. And maybe that (laughs) stuck in my brain too much uh, for (laughs) when we were recording it. You're going to get us sued. (laughs) (laughs) So now we do a segment sometimes on the show called Phone a Friend or Phone Mom, but I'm not going to get my mom on this episode. (laughs) We are going to call someone who was instrumental in some of these songs, Mr. Daniel Mark. Oh, literally. And, uh, you know, the song Sonic Boom that a lot of folks have been asking us to record um, came from a very simple driving mandolin line that was sort of circulating throughout the band. And me and Daniel, as (laughs) songwriters, do not always get along. Um, I would be lying to say if our collaborations are easy, uh, but it's created some really interesting music that I would not have ever created myself. And three songs on this record, uh, Sonic Boom, Mirror, and Runaway came from these collaborations. So he's at work at an office right now, but we're going to call him anyway for his thoughts on the process. It's Daniel Mark on the podcast. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi, Daniel. So we were just talking about uh, Sonic Boom, Mirror, and Runaway and how those came together. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, Sonic Boom especially started to form? Yes, I can. Because I knew I was going to be on the podcast and I prepared. (laughs) (laughs) My recollection was always wanting to, um, you know, the band collectively was trying to push the music forward. And um, I think that was an initial idea just for, I don't know if you call it modernizing or pushing the limits. Um, Although, whether it sounds like, you know, Mumford and Sons, that's debatable, but that was the original (laughs) idea. Um, And, you know, bringing something new and new and fresh to the band. That's, that's what I, uh, that's what I remember from the beginning of Sonic Boom. And then, you know, Zach and I working on it and, and everyone flushing it out. 
I think we were in my uh, mother-in-law's old house in Virginia when we first started coming out with the form of that. That was probably That's right. three years ago, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And that house yeah, is now long gone. But uh, you know, you you were with the group for a long time, and I know that you know you stepped away to pursue other things. But tell me briefly what you think your uh, experience was with the band and how. Uh, you know, you feel about the new record coming out today. <laughs> I know you're at the office, but like, just, just, you know, s- s- come up with something. The whole band's there, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I'm very proud to um, be on this record. And I think it, as far as like, le- as far as leaving the band, I'm happy, I'm more than happy that, you know, that I'm on it and that, uh, you know, we all get to uh, share that together. And so it's exciting uh, to put it, it's exciting that it's released today. And I'm wishing the best for it, for, uh, for everybody. This, this is, this is, this is it. This is it. This is the one. (laughs) Yeah, it's always the one. (laughs) But I'm glad. <laughs> no, I I remember telling my I remember telling my parents when I was like, look, I could I need like a, like three or four grand to make CDs of the Atomic Mushroom Cloud of Love. This is gonna be like groundbreaking. Like I remember like like convincing them of this in like 2008. Sorry, mom and dad, but they're like they're the best. But you know, Daniel, I'm I'm. I'm glad that the songs that we were able to create together uh, are on this record. And, and honestly, they wouldn't, you know, have existed without some of your uh, unique insight. I appreciate that. You know, the, the funny thing about the songs to me is that, you know, there was a, always the debate in the band about, like, fun party versus feelings. And I argued heavily for the fun party songs and the songs that I ended up contributing on on this record (laughs) are probably like the softest you know well no I mean there's other emotional songs on the record but definitely the ones I contributed to are are heavily on the 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 feeling side as the band likes to call it um so just a bit of just a bit of irony there I guess but um I mean, I'm, ha- I'm I'm happy the way they came out. I still think that the beginning of Mirror is my crowning achievement in 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 life. That's that's the sound that I was going for right there. Lately, I've been thinking about that night and what happened to you. I was older than you and I should have known better The full moon was like a drunken eye blinking All right, we'll talk to you later, man. Thanks for calling. All right, bye. Hey, have an amazing tour. Thank right, you, man. Bye, Daniel. Bye. Give me notes, Speaking of which, you know, a lot of us in this band have had various musical educations. Uh, some of us, you know, grew up on classic rock and folk music, you know, jazz, funk, whatever. You know, Ulf, you have a much different upbringing because your dad was a classical um, 
conductor, and we have this joke that you thought that um, Stevie Nicks was a man until like two years ago. Um, yes, that is true. That is a true story. It's not a joke. That <laughs> it's the truth. The truth. Do you think that your your classical upbringing, you know, has really contributed to some of the parts that you've made on this new record? Uh, yes, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting that I know Zach. You grew up listening to uh, the band singing "The Weight" with your father. I had not even heard of the band until about a year and a half ago. Mm. Uh, let alone the song that I sing so well, the third verse. <laughs> Watch for me on the road. Watch for me on tour. Uh, and, I, and I grew up listening to Mozart and Baroque music from the 1600s. It's, it's kind of odd. But uh, yes, so in making this new album, Is It You, Is It Me?, I loved how receptive Sam was. Frankly, he was very receptive to a lot of my ideas, which makes me feel really... Received. No, I feel very satisfied and happy in in that sense. Uh, Matt made some beautiful parts to uh, some of the songs. I know, Matt, you stayed up till 4 a.m. watching Netflix. No, uh, Matt stayed up... (laughs) Matt stayed up till 4 a.m. carefully conceiving various parts for flugel, horn, trumpet, two French horns, uh, and then tenor and bass trombone. It exceeded even my uh, my expectations in s- some ways. On this album in particular, on a song like uh, like Let It Go, you know, I was able to sit with Sam and Ulf and map out the whole song and say, all right, before you even knew what the notes were, just say, all right, this verse, French horns come in. And then this verse, we layer in French horn and trombone. And then it's bigger here, and then it comes down soft here. And figuring out the actual notes and rhythms is kind of secondary after that. Well, I think also, you know, I, I've been inspired by some albums that came out recently, especially um, the work of Michael Kiwanuka and the way he has this big orchestral soul rock and roll experience happening. And his, uh, his record, Love and Hate, is, I think, one of the best records of the last 10 years. Uh, and it feels like it could exist in any era. And that's sort of my hope whenever you create a new work that it can feel timeless. Um, and at times we've fallen into the trap of trying to make something sound vintage, which is not the same thing. Um, and this is, uh, you know, a challenge that I think a lot of bands have who love old music is that you want to honor the past and create something for the future. Uh, and sometimes you just end up creating a rehash of something that you didn't know wouldn't be fully realized until you hear it a year later and you're like, wow, this is not fully there, you know. One of my favorite things that Sam asked us to do when we first started working with him 
was to make lists of our favorite records that have come out in the past 10 years or something. Mm -hmm. He was like, because it's easy to pick all the great records from the 60s and 70s, and -hmm. they all sound great, and of course, those are your favorites. Mm -hmm. But uh, to pick and find things that are more current that you're drawn to and that you, you know, connect to this with the sound of, um, I thought that was a really interesting way of starting the process. Can everyone go around and actually try to remember what those, a few of those records were? I was just thinking, I can't remember any record that I picked right now. I can say that, uh, it's a record by Alt-J called Relaxer and the song is called In Cold Blood. Mm. I love that song. Where they use live uh, brass, bass trombones and trombones and trumpets. And for me, that is what was the inspiration for specifically the bridge for the song Dreaming. I basically wanted to just copy this Alt J song, including having the triplet pattern. sure I gave Sam my, I passed on my obsession for Ausgish, or spelled Asgir, uh, an Icelandic artist who melds acoustic close miking with electronic synth production, and though our music sounds a lot different at times, it's also very similar in its cinematic approach, and in concept, uh, I use that as a lot of inspiration for getting weird tones on the violin, and since we were in the studio, I could get really close mic weird right on the bridge sounds and a lot of interesting plucked sounds. I know uh, uh, an album that me and Matt both love that I've kind of referenced for every Dust Bowl record is uh, Jenny Lewis's Rabbit Fur Coat. You know, there's something about the way she blends harmony and rock and roll instrumentation that is just transcendent, and I've always loved that record as a reference point. I pulled up the email <laughs> that I sent to Sam. Um, I know I cared a lot when we were talking about influences for the album about I wanted the sounds to be really separated so that the arrangement and the panning and the mixing was really important to me. Um, what I sent to Sam as albums that I think accomplish this very well and also have sort of that emotional but en- pop energy and folk influence were Stay Gold by First Aid Kit, um, The Bird and the Bee, some of my favorite albums are their albums um father john misty's most recent album and agnes obel i think does that really well you can really hear all the instruments clearly and i loved um using vocals as an instrument also coming up in a few weeks my episode with agnes obel what recorded at Capitol records down in hollywood Hmm. josh what about you honestly uh the new jacob collier album Mm. Jesse Volume 1 is unbelievable. It's with the Metropole. What is it, Metropole yeah. Orchestra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. It it's crazy. Can we all go around real quick? Tell me the moment when you were a young man that you realized you wanted to pursue music for real. Was it a concert? Was it a, a, a video you saw? For me, I wanted to play electric bass when I saw an Eagles music video. I thought the guy on the bass looked real cool, and it looked like easy enough <laughs> that you could kind of like learn how to do it. And then I went to this guitar shop in Indiana, in Michigan City, Indiana, and my mom was like, why don't you play the guitar or something else? Like, why do you want to play the bass? And the guy goes, no, no, 
Learn how to play the bass because you'll always have a job. I think that's true. <laughs> you know, I've been playing gigs since I was, you know, in elementary school, but I think the moment I realized I should do that was when I got a C plus in math. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I should actually maybe give this music thing a try. <laughs> you know, it is scary for my parents and myself and it, I think I was, you know, sixteen and at that point I was like, Okay, it's time to like you know, prove to myself that I can do this. You were 16 when you first started playing with us, I think, right? 17. 17? Yeah. I uh, just graduated high school. We played a show at the now-defunct Hip Kitty Fondue and Jazz Club Ooh, yeah, so in Claremont, with, three sets a night. With Dan Giannotti, we went out to see a friend of his and ended up like doing yoga in their living room. And it was quite fun, but I didn't get home until 4 a.m. So I got, a call, I got a call the next day from his mom, Susan, who uh, is a wonderful lady. Lobster. Gives us uh, rides to the airport about four times a month. And what does she call it again? Moober. Moober. Mom Uber. Uh, Would you like a Perrier with your ride? <laughs> but, yes. but she called me and basically was like, look, I just need to know if you guys are doing drugs or not. <laughs> like, I'm okay with him staying out late and doing this music thing. Is there drugs? And I was like, not that I know of. I don't, I don't believe so. We're playing at a fondue restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I think she called me impressionable. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think Connor has uh, always been the the youthful presence in the band. But you know what? I think he has stayed on the straight and narrow, as well, far as I can tell. Like, yeah, we're doing drugs, but Connor brought them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, don't listen to that part. I'll go around about Liz, the moment where you wanted to do music for realsies. Well, when I was a young man... <laughs> When I first realized I wanted to do music, I actually didn't know I was going to do music for realsies until I joined this band. Like, that's not, um, I just sort of have sung forever my whole life, and I've always been moved by music. I did dance as a young person. I always have sung publicly um, in chorus in school. I just always believed that music would be a part of my life that was emotionally fulfilling and um, communicative, I think, for me. So when I joined Dust Bowl, I, I really would describe it to people saying, I, this is not how I thought my life was going to go. I moved to LA to pursue acting, and then I realized about six or so years into it that I really don't like acting for film. I will do it for fun in really short bursts, but I did not want to pursue television or film, and that was really difficult for me to um, accept. And as soon as I did, and I chose Dust Bowl and found Dustbowl, I mean, and um, we sort of went on the road. It was really like, oh, this feels really right, and it has sort of been explosive for me um, to have that happen. But I think at least I can answer your question in terms of performing. Um, I have a history of anxiety, and when I was in college, we were doing the Laramie Project, and I did sing in that, so it's a little bit related to music, Um, even though it's not a musical. and right before the second, right before the second act, the play had been protested by the Westboro Baptist Church um, because it is about a hate crime, and they are very persistent and follow this play around essentially the country and just protest it because that's what they're about. And I um, think was I was all sort of all jacked up because of that. And right before going out on stage for the second act, I started to panic backstage. I was just like really. 
emotionally wired. And I went out on stage and I started the second act with this whole monologue about him being in the hospital and um, it was really intense and emotional. And as soon as I went out there and just started saying this monologue that I, that I knew and had rehearsed and had tapped into, my body just sort of calmed down. And I knew from then on that that's what I had to do with the rest of my life. If it has that much power over just me as a person, what does that mean that it's doing to a group of people that are participating in that performance? And that goes for music and that goes for theater. And um, for me, I think it's especially important for live performance, um, but it can happen at movies. It can happen in television. So for me, it's that intense connection between humans. Yeah. And I think we both, you know, grew up doing theater and that was something that is so important as a, a bedrock base, knowing that you can go out there and you can face that, crippling anxiety because I think we all have that the moment you're about to step out there um, I did a lot of Shakespeare you know in high school and college and I still have nightmares every now and again of going out and all the lines are gone <laughs> and the funny thing is that I never have nightmares about music like that mm. oh that's funny I have nightmares that you're not on stage and I have to play guitar and I don't know any oh. of the chords <laughs> <laughs> well Sometimes one has to go to the bathroom. Don't ever do that to me. <laughs> yes? The moment where you thought that music had to be your pursuit in life. Uh, I can't actually think of a specific, like, eureka moment. Uh, as you know, I grew up around music. My dad was a conductor, composer, pianist. And uh, I guess it was just kind of... Uh, you know, surrounded by it from the start. So it just kind of happened very naturally. I used to perform with my uh, younger brother and sister in what we called the Bjorland Trio. So it was my brother, sister, and I, and my dad would play concerts for uh, usually old people, but they would buy tickets to come see us perform. And I, I did that since I was about 10, 12 years old, I feel. I started playing a... Uh, wind instrument when I was 12, and that was the euphonium, or the baritone horn. That was my first uh, brass instrument. I played piano before then, but I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy practicing it. So, no piano for me. I want to take a brief detour into our album art. Um, the wonderful Dewey Saunders uh, collage artist yeah. created this insane um, visual tapestry for the cover and the interior. Um, if you get the vinyl or the CD, you can see these beautiful collections of images that kind of represent really the whole aura of the record in some way. And we all kind of uh, sent in some image um, ideas to help synthesize what we wanted to convey. But Ulf, you know, tell me about that that uh, hummingbird that's on the top of it. Yeah, the, the, my, one, my mm. one note was, I really want a hummingbird in it. And... Uh... No, I don't think anybody knew why until after it was all finalized. But to me, the hummingbird represents my father, who uh, passed away 26 years ago, October 23rd, 1993. Because he had told my mom before he died that he would come back as a hummingbird to mm. visit. So I'm glad that uh, the hummingbird's on our cover. I wonder, if, I wonder if he's seen us in some other spiritual form. Who knows? Matt, what about your moment that you wanted to be in music? Uh, I'm trying to remember. It's hard. I, when I was in elementary school and all the way up through middle school, I wanted to be an artist, like a visual artist. And a cartoonist, right? I, cartoonist at one point. Uh, so 
I pretty much never had a chance at a real job. I think in middle school, uh, in elementary and middle school, I sang a lot more than I played. I mean, I started playing trumpet, but mainly I was focused on like singing in choir and I had a high angelic voice. And then uh, in middle school, puberty happened. And uh, I remember having a not very good audition to sing in our middle school production of The Music Man. And then I auditioned to play in the pit orchestra instead of being on stage. And I was like, I'm much more comfortable here. (laughs) And uh, then, so my focus sort of shifted to playing instrumental music, playing trumpet. And uh, right before high school, I started taking private lessons with a private instructor outside of school for the first time and just saw sort of a meteoric improvement in my level of playing um, from, like, last chair in the section to, you know, competing for first chair in the section. And I was like, oh, this is something, like, I'm good at and am drawn to. And uh, that was probably it. I mean, all through high school, I don't know. I did a bunch of stuff, but it was all pretty much music-focused, and I knew I was going to go to college for music and figure it out from there. Before we go, let's ask Josh. (laughs) (laughs) The moment where he was inspired to play the drums. Okay. Uh, I mean, I guess growing up, I... And I feel like... It's probably happened to you. Did you guys ever get caught? Like, I would get caught pretending to perform oh my God, by myself. Yes. Like, I literally tied shoestrings. I'm glad that wasn't only I me. Tied, no, I tied <laughs> shoestrings to tennis rackets and would play to the Top Gun soundtrack, and I would get caught all the time oh as a God, little kid. Awesome. Uh, you also had a Top Gun haircut. I did. <laughs> we can talk about my old haircuts on another podcast <laughs> called Josh's Old Haircuts. Um, I actually played clarinet for four and a half or five years before I played drums. Uh, I was first chair, whatever. It's not a big, it's not a big deal. You should whip that out like totally yeah. randomly. <laughs> I did. I was actually really good at it. But I remember in middle school, the drummers, I didn't think were cutting it. They just could never play their parts. And I was like, you guys can't play your parts. That is so on brand. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I went back. Nine years old. They and really I went, need to work on their fundamentals. I was just like, I, I, they were, it was, anyway, so I went up and I started playing. And the conductor's like, you're really good at it. And so I started playing both instruments awesome. on certain songs. And then that year, I didn't get a drum set till I was 17. But when I got that, I, I, I often tell people when they say, when did you choose to play music. I don't think you actually choose. You may choose to make that a profession, but I think it's a calling. I think people, some people don't understand that mm. choosing what you do and a calling. Like I've had ex-girlfriends in the past be like, well, why don't you just quit playing drums and get a job? And I'm like, you, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't understand that it's not something like, like with Matt, my days off when we're off tour are spent practicing and learning all the time. That's just what I enjoy doing, and it's a part of my. It's not a part of my life. But it's it's most of my life. That and long hikes. And <laughs> long, I do yeah. really enjoy long hikes. But the, one of the things I love about long hikes is the fact that I actually get a chance to listen to whole records. Ah, uh, yeah. Because we're all so busy, it's very difficult for us to actually go sit down and listen to a record front to back. And that's one of the things I enjoy about that. That's one of the things that I've 
fallen in love with doing this podcast thing uh, is forcing myself to listen to an artist's entire body of work right. if I can. If it's someone like Steve Earle, who's been around for 40 years, can't really <laughs> pick, a, pick a few of them. Uh, but really seeing how an album arc develops and, you know, maybe it's old-fashioned, but albums still matter to me, you know? Like, seeing how an artist puts together songs and and how they flow together and what stories they're trying to tell, you know, that's something that I hope people will listen to our record and, and, and let us know what emotions or what uh, stories that they're seeing in themselves. Because really, um, everyone can hear a song differently. Even these write-ups that we're getting, we were joking yesterday that Rolling Stone will say, you know, this song sounds like a a klezmer spaghetti western number. And then the next people are like, well, this sounds like a Hawaiian folk song. And it's the same song. Yeah. And that's kind of the beauty of music. It, everyone hears it and feels it the same way. And the last thing I'm going to ask everybody, since we're about to go uh, up the road to play a show tonight, try to remember the worst show <laughs> that you've ever played. With Dust Bowl or in general? In, with Dust Bowl. Okay. That you, like personally or as a band? Personally. Like the moment <laughs> where you really had to pushed through to survive. I can can actually give you a good one. And it wasn't that the show was bad. We were in... um, Crap. um, uh, Memphis. We were in Memphis, and I can't remember the venue, but we were walking down a set of stairs, and I slipped. Oh, no. And I caught myself. I caught myself, and I either broke or jammed my thumb, but we had to play like an hour later. And so my thumb is like two and a half times the size of my other thumb. And... I keep Liz keeps turning around because every time I hit the snare drum, I'm like, ah! <laughs> 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 oh, God, it hurts so bad. And I even if I held it like a baseball bat, and wow. that for me that was probably the hardest worst show. Okay, a couple of years ago in Amsterdam, I enjoyed some local vegetables, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> is that what they call it? Fun, fun guy. And I assumed I would be good to play the show after some dinner. Um, but and I I felt good except I was very dizzy during the show and right on the edge of the stage and operating the wah-wah with the left foot and then like trying to balance on the right foot I was genuinely terrified I almost slipped and fell off the stage a few times during that show is that when we had to take the the rickshaw back yeah. to the venue the paradiso <laughs> yeah. the smaller well, paradiso yeah. yeah that was I definitely remember looking through the plastic sort of curtain of this rickshaw and everything was like spinning and I was like when is our oh, our set is in half an hour also that was after like scarfing frites and mayo which did not help the situation <laughs> uh, good we, times <laughs> we were playing a show in Long Beach um, in this basement bar and it was at a time where we had sort of a rotating cast of bass players who only sort of knew the songs so I had sort of taken it upon myself to signal the chords, you know, a one chord, a four chord, a five chord with my hand, my left hand, while my right hand is free to play the trumpet. And uh, toward the end of the night, I got my hands mixed up and tried to signal with the hand that was holding the trumpet and just threw my trumpet onto the floor, breaking it in multiple places. What was the gig in Flagstaff where Connor's fiddle flew across oh, the, uh, yeah. the Oh, my God. Hotel, oh my God. Hotel right. Monte Vista. She, she, the bartender comes running from the back of the stage, catches the wire, 
violent flies face down across the bar. I remember. Comes with a plate later to apologize of shots for everybody in the band, except for me. She gave me Skittles. Skittles. <laughs> he was underage. It was very responsible. I, I remember playing at a performing arts center, and during on stage during the show, I let my slide fly, and it hit the floor. And Matt looked at me like I had just, like, shh. Sharded on him. <laughs> is that the show? Is no. that the that show? The show? So, and, 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 and I just, I just kind of casually walked <laughs> over to the slide like nothing had happened and picked it up and was very confused as to why that had happened because that doesn't happen. So, as far as playing bad shows, that was not one of them. I have. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna tell. I'm not, everyone wants me to share this no, one. No, we're really cautioning you. Sounds like a juicy I, story. I have I have shows where I personally have been incredibly upset with my playing and my performance, uh, and I will like, you know, leave and like be angry for two days about how poorly I played. This doesn't happen anymore. I used to torment myself a few years ago. Uh, so there's moments like that where I'm like, this sucks, why do I do this, blah, 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 like, this is pointless, what's it all mean, yada, yada. And then there's other times where it's like soul-sucking, we're at a little bar in front of four people in the middle of nowhere. What about the worst show that you ever played? <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't actually think of, like, personally. I've, we've, we've played some important shows that I was incredibly upset with, like, for myself, including when we recorded Lampshade, the live mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I th I think it's hard to beat the show at the water park in China. Mm. Oh, that may that be one of my show. favorites. <laughs> as just fun. as just one of the more memorable, uh, frighteningly bizarre shows where we we did this tour of China. They brought us to a a, a door factory owned uh, by Willy Wonka water park slash theme park that was for their workers. It was a bit on the rundown side. They had a place called Wine Town. Red Wine Town. Okay, you yes, keep and going. <laughs> they had a, a a mechanical crane that lowered Liz like a princess down to the stage. The stage was about fifty feet above a water pond display. Pond. <laughs> they had <laughs> they had a. I said duck pond. Oh, I you said death pond. <laughs> They had no sound equipment. Brand. They had no sound equipment, basically. So we had to play um, completely by ear through wireless microphones, like two of them. And I actually begged them. This is the only time, hopefully, this will ever happen to just play our CD <laughs> so we can mime the music. I was like, "This will be better for everyone. Please don't make us try to do this." And they're like, "No, no, no. This is you have to play it, or they won't, you know, cheer for you." And the the audience, the audience it's was like. like 400 feet below us. And like 200 yards away because yeah. of that pond. And also there. they had dancers that would come out in front of us and then there was also flames. Yeah, they had fireworks. And fireworks. and fireworks. I was like, we're going to die. Okay. So our beloved Red Wine Town was interestingly just in international news for sending a swine on a bungee jump in a promotional stunt. What? Yes. That's what that was? A live yes. Red Wine Town. Yeah. I remember going on that gondola and wondering if we were going to make it to the other side of the park. <laughs> we might die. We might die right now. Though for me, that was not the worst because I was so um, enamored by where we were, <laughs> how bizarre our circumstances were. 
it was entertaining for me. Um, but the first show that came to mind was the show at the Independent in San Francisco. And uh, thank yeah. the Lord for our fans being so... Um, Friendly. engaged with our show that they didn't notice that I basically didn't sing that mm -hmm. show because I had gotten sick and and I think had like um, fog exposure in the show prior and I just like literally could not sing. I've my voice sounded like a goose. I was just honking like um, a goose. And so I like kind of half sang like harmony vocals with like no support. Like Marilyn Monroe style. <laughs> just like singing like this because if I put any force behind my voice I was like oh, I was just the worst um, but the but probably like the worst uh, or maybe most difficult show for me to perform was when we played Long Beach a different show than when Matt threw his trumpet to the ground Long Beach. we were playing Harvell's right the same spot I think. Yeah. nightclub and we were playing feels good and there's a very enthusiastic gentleman in the front. This just made me think of another one. Yeah. I've got three. Um, the <laughs> this guy's like so through. ready for this song. And I'm like, you hear me knocking, but you can't come in. He goes, woo, 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 woo. After every line. So it's like, good, 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 Woo, 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 woo. It's just like, I, I just thought of another one. I could not continue. But then there was a time in Brooklyn where there was like a demon vocal effect. <laughs> yeah, at the Bell House. At the Bell House, we were like playing with our friends, the defibrillators, and like Miss Tess was there, and we go to sing Doubling Down, and it's just like an octave, but like. <laughs> and then there was the guy in Iowa City who was like, I got next song. <laughs> and, Zach, yeah. and he stood right in front of Zach cold. and I and I was like what do you what <laughs> do you mean like you're gonna sing one of our songs or you're just like you think this is karaoke <laughs> do you remember in Salt Lake not Salt Lake City in Utah that barbecue joint oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about bad shows oh, yeah, like forever <laughs> there was a I convinced uh, I think this is when I still did our own booking where I convinced a barbecue shop in Utah to have us play on their stage and they would put us up in the motel they owned next door I think on the way to Colorado but they hadn't told anyone at the restaurant <laughs> that we were playing there was a cardboard cutout of Johnny Cash I remember that on the stage and we got there and I was like yeah they said uh, we could stay next door and they'll give us dinner and we can perform and he's like that's not what I heard. <laughs> and then he made us pay for like the whole dinner, which was like four hundred dollars. Just stay in the stage, fit you. Yeah, yeah. it was wonderful. It was well, it's been great talking to everybody, and um, I want to say that it's been an honor to be able to create music with you guys throughout these many years. And my hope is for people listening to this show, fans of the band, people who are maybe just discovering that we exist. Um, Come out to a show, see this band live. It is a unique, awesome experience. And I say this on the podcast a lot, but you know, without people actually supporting new art, it will die. And you need to go out and support people who are not famous already. Because hardworking bands like us, this is our job. This is our livelihood. Um, and it's not easy. It's not uh, always fun. But... It's a relationship between the listener and the musician. And I want everybody to 
meet buy us out there. <laughs> and honestly, yeah, you know what? If you buy one album this year, uh, you know, you buy, what, five coffees at Starbucks every week. Just spend 10 bucks on a record. Spend yeah. 20 bucks on a vinyl. You know, it's it's doable. And I think if people realize that music is worth it, everyone will be lifted up. Monday morning I woke up I didn't know who I was A broken soul in a motel room Living in my ferro's Tuesday morning I started to run Across the country just because Texas tonight ain't my Chevrolet Smiling cause I got a middle Nobody knows Going, going to Whoa, Somebody's gotta go Is it this would be a good segue to talk to Sam Kassirer, the wonderful producer on our record. And we actually got to talk in Boston before our show at the Sinclair. So here's that conversation. Is there a song that you remember helping us make that sticks out to you that you think is more important than the rest or that really can have an impact on people? Well, I think some of, my, some of those might be some of the songs that I had an earliest relationship with. And I think for me, it might be actually the first couple songs on the album, Dreaming and uh, An Enemy. Mm. Because there are ones I feel like um, I heard just 20 seconds of a demo of and knew that they would be really great. And that I could see sort of a different musical context being shaped around them using all the amazing instruments you guys play. And so it's probably that. I have really good memories of, of working on Dreaming um, in the rehearsal studio, in Josh's rehearsal studio in L.A., and just trying out a bunch of different things and looping the chorus endlessly and trying different things. And I, th- I thought that was really fun because it felt like it was a new song for everybody. Whereas, you know, Sonic Boom worked from the beginning, and yes, we certainly made some changes and everything in terms of what you guys have been performing, but um, some of these other songs were real compositions. We were writing them still in the studio, and so those are probably the ones that are more memorable to me. Yeah, the uh, the one that sticks out for me is uh, just one song, and maybe selfishly being able to have one of my sort of more folk story songs yeah. on there that is very spare and very personal. Um, it really means a lot to me that we were able to get that song on there. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it's telling this story of, of sort of my experience of going across the country playing songs to people who may really need it and may you know need that lifting up sensation uh-huh. because i think there's a lot of people that they go to shows to have their worldview changed and have right, their sure. uh this, their sadness sort of veiled for one night yeah. by this sort of joy and 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 storytelling that you know we hope to bring them and that song is really meaningful whenever I sing it, and it, it probably would not have made any sort of Dust Bowl record if someone like you didn't <laughs> stick up for it. You know. Well, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I think I think a, a good song also, when people are at shows, they can find a tiny piece of themselves in it, and that's certainly an easy one to do that with. And you added some beautiful Wurlitzer and, and different... Uh, keyboards on it I that think. was a really fun to re- one to record i remember those uh like nine ladies in a row singing ooze all in unison it's not something that was you know doubled by one singer it was something that happened live and that 
big room, and I remember that really, feeling that, that that was really emotionally special. Yeah, you'll notice uh, on the new record that several songs like Mirror, uh, Runaway, Just One Song, uh, they have this sort of lady choral group yeah. in the background. And really, it was just some of our wives and their friends who came to the studio right. last moment. A couple of them are actually professional singers. Uh, Eva Barras is, is great, and um, our friend McKenna Ridgeway sings all over L.A. So we had some, like, ringers, but also some people who would just, like, my wife came from the office in Pasadena yeah, and killed it, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you think Dust Bowl's career or what do you think is going to happen next for us? Interesting. Well... I think that one of, one of the pursuits seems to be to become less of a demonstration of different genres of American historical music and put them constantly all into one pot of every song you guys sing together. And I think that hopefully that's happening more on this album in terms of having all the influences happen all the time to make this sort of unique voice with all you guys together. And I could see that happening certainly in the shows recently and continuing to happen on albums uh, and for the rest of your guys' career. What do you think the narrative arc is of this record, if there is one? The narrative arc? Oh, geez. Because I think you. Isn't that your job? Yeah. <laughs> but I can't interview myself. <laughs> you could what ask you, me, okay. I guess. Zach Lupton here with Dust Bowl Revival. What do you think is the narrative arc of this album? I think it's about facing your fears and um, acknowledging your own doubts and uh -huh. trying to accept the journey that you're on. Um, and that's why I think opening with dreaming of this sort of dark alternate reality and, and saying, like, how could this have happened? You know, what what is happening to me mm -hmm. is really well that's a better answer than I would have given but the end is basically the other side of it and let it go saying alright you know what I have a lot of inner turmoil that I have to deal with every night I step in front of that microphone mm -hmm. and I question myself I question why I'm doing this how I can sustain this you know what is the point of all this sure and then you have to realize like you know what you love this uh -huh. So let that be enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now those are good bookends for the arc for sure. Hey, it's Zach here. A quick note, we're going to bring you an acoustic version of our song, Let It Go. As you can imagine, getting seven people in a horn section around one mic, a bit of a conundrum sound-wise. But you know what? We did our best, and I hope you like it. Here it is now, Let It Go. Maybe I'll never escape 
There they go now, Dust Bowl Revival, everybody. 
You can go to DustBowlRevival.com for their music and their tour dates. This is my gang, and I'm so glad that you've supported us over the years. And you know what? Go back and listen to some of the previous episodes on this show. They include some of my all-time favorite musicians touring the world right now, including the Birds of Chicago, who will be playing a big show with us at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. Friday night, and also at the Paramount Theater in Bristol, Tennessee, Saturday night, February 8th. They are among my favorite harmony groups of all time. What Ali and JT do with their voices, it brings me chills. The band will then be going south, playing in Asheville and Atlanta and Nashville with our friends Front Country, who are also on this show. Then we'll be heading home to play the Fillmore in San Francisco, Harlow's in Sacramento, and February 29th at the Troubadour Home in L.A., Just a reminder, sorry for the crazy noises going on. There's a show happening right outside these doors. We're about to go play, and I'm also in the boiler room, so there's that. If you go to thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that they just did a really cool interview with me that went up a few days ago. And you know what? The Bluegrass Situation team, including Amy Rittenauer and the whole gang, they've been so, so giving to us over the years. When we started out playing bars in L.A., they gave us a shot. They wrote about us, and they actually let me write about other bands. So I'm very, very thankful for them throughout the years giving me the support that I desperately needed. We will be taking a few much-needed weeks off to get our minds right and collect more awesome episodes for the show. But in the meantime, I will be headed up to the Winter Wondergrass Fest in Lake Tahoe. And I want to say a quick thanks to them for getting behind the show and sponsoring the other podcasts on the Bluegrass Situation Network. If you want to support this show, reach out to us on Instagram, Show on the Road Podcast, and I'll see you up in Lake Tahoe. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash Show on the Road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the BluegrassSituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.